I'm delighted to be here with you. My wife does send her regrets. Uh, life caught up with us as it sometimes does, and she wasn't able to come. She'll be especially disappointed not to be able to have a Hungarian fellowship um, with Dinka. Uh, uh, I, I thought that was sort of cruel to refer to her as crafty, although uh, <laughs> Hungarians tend to bear that as a badge of honor. You know, <laughs> one of the definitions of a Hungarian is someone who can go into a revolving door behind you and come out ahead. Uh, <laughs> Well, I am, I am very pleased to be here in spite of the subject assigned to me. Um, I, I prefer to go places talking about non-controversial topics like women in ecclesiastical office or other, uh, other issues about which there is no controversy. But um, uh, I, I am pleased to, uh, to talk about this subject of worship because I think it's so inherently important. Uh, but I also know that it's a dangerous subject because... Um, as with a number of things like uh, politics and education, uh, everyone is quite sure that their own views are absolutely right on the subject of worship. And uh, in point of fact, only mine are absolutely right. Uh, <laughs> but I do hope, therefore, in the course of these lectures to offend each and every one of you uh, to a greater or lesser extent. Uh, I will uh, express myself rather positively as we go along, and uh, I hope uh, that uh, you will find that... Uh, uh, stimulating, and that's my intention. I, uh, in spite of the way I sometimes sound, don't believe I have absolutely the last word on uh, these subjects. Only the scripture has the last word. And um, nonetheless, it is a subject to which I've given a fair amount of thought over uh, recent years uh, because of uh, the ways in which worship uh, has become uh, increasingly controversial in our time. Some people, as you know, have begun to speak about the worship wars and uh, uh, that is certainly true in some congregations that tensions have reached a point uh, where we really do have worship wars and uh, some denominations have experienced uh, those problems. Uh, we should not be entirely surprised uh, by that because if you do a little uh, survey of the history of Christianity you soon discover that a significant level of variety has been around for a long time. Uh, for example, uh, you might contrast, on the one hand, uh, the worship of Greek Orthodox Christians. If you've ever been in a Greek Orthodox church, you know that it is a church filled with visual symbolism and that the worship service proceeds as an elaborate, dramatic ritual. Um, and for the stout of heart and strong of leg in the old country, that ritual goes on for three hours. Uh, filled with uh, every imaginable kind of uh, marshalling of the senses and the arts in the worship of God. Uh, by contrast, I suppose the absolute polar opposite of that elaborate Eastern Orthodox worship would be the worship of Quakers, uh, who gather in a perfectly simple and plain building without any kind of uh, religious symbolism at all and spend most of their time sitting quietly. By the time we've listened to those drums for a while, we may all be tempted to become Quakers, but uh, you, must, you must resist that uh, temptation. I suppose as a, if you want a kind of triangulation, not just the opposite of, of Orthodox and Quaker, then you might add the Pentecostals of our time uh, who, 
who have a, a noisy, rather spontaneous form of worship uh, to be contrasted with the, uh, the, the very stylized, ritualized worship of the Orthodox and the uh, perfectly or almost perfectly quiet worship of the Quakers. So that when one surveys the, the scene of Christian worship, there has for a long time been a very dramatic uh, variety. Nonetheless, I think it's fair to say that amongst evangelical Protestants, we have probably seen in the last 20 to 30 years um, more dramatic change in worship than at any time since the Reformation. Uh, for a long time, uh, there were uh, slight changes that took place over a rather long period of time, but uh, Protestant worship, mainstream evangelical Protestant worship, had a fair degree of similarity from one denomination to another. And yet in our time, we're beginning to see uh, quite a dramatic change in that homogeneity and seeing a lot of varieties uh, coming along, and that what is what has precipitated in many ways the, the worship wars, because there are some people who don't want to change, usually dubbed the traditionalists, and those who are eager to try every change imaginable, usually called the innovators. And uh, often the tension between those uh, two groups uh, can be very, very um, severe in, in local congregations. The innovators convinced that they will save Christianity and do the work of evangelism. And um, the traditionalists convinced that they will save Christianity and Western civilization to boot. So it, it, can be, uh, it can be very tense. It can be, uh, be very difficult. And uh, uh, what we want to try to do as we uh, uh, gather for these 11 uh, lectures on worship is, is to try to think about what worship really is and to try to examine what the Word of God uh, tells us. Because our commitment as Reformed people is that we want to be faithful to the Word of God. And faithful to the Word of God means neither adding to nor detracting from, subtracting from the Word of God. We want uh, the fullness of the Word of God in our worship, and yet we don't want anything more uh, than the fullness of the Word of God. Don't you think they ever get tired of those drums? I think maybe that's why they don't swim. It would ruin the drums. <laughs> Well, the place we have to, um, yeah, this, this illustrates that uh, uh, great principle of contemporary music, uh, two words, three notes, four hours. Okay. Uh, no, that's not original, I regret to say. Um... um the place we need to begin, I think, is to think a little bit about the character of worship, because only as we think about the character of worship can we begin to explore uh, some of the uh, uh, other issues related to worship. And uh, right at the beginning with the character of worship, we find the first controversy that has uh, um, been raised, at least by some in the church, uh, because some have said, well, you see, when we gather... We are really free to do almost anything in worship because after all, especially in the New Testament, all of life is worship. All of life is worship. And of course, uh, that's true, isn't it? 
Uh, that's what uh, Paul uh, says in uh, Romans 12, verse 1. Uh, everything we do is our reasonable service or our spiritual worship. It is our devotion to God. We live all of our lives in the presence of God. And we live out all of our lives in the service of God. And therefore, in the broadest sense, it is certainly true that all of life is worship. I think that is a teaching of the New Testament. But the question that immediately comes to us then is, does that mean, as some have argued, that there is no place in the New Covenant for any gathered form of worship which God directs and God um, establishes in His Word? Is uh, the last word that all of life is worship? And therefore, whatever we do, uh, wherever we're doing it, we must see it as worship and offer it to God. And therefore, whenever we gather, whatever we do is worship. Whatever we can do anywhere, we can do in a gathered Christian setting. And therefore, um, I could quit. And we could have the rest of the week worshiping by hiking and throwing horseshoes and getting together here from time to time to maybe sing and do a little praying and uh, that would be fine. It would all be worship. It would all be equally worship. We could say that throwing horseshoes is every bit as much worship as singing praise to God. Now, in a sense, you see, from the perspective of Romans 12, that's true. We are to throw horseshoes to the glory of God. We are not to try to wring the neck of our little brother or sister. We're just supposed to try to hit the stake. And therefore, there are dimensions of service to God involved in horseshoes. But it is also true, as we can see from looking at the New Testament, that the New Testament church also had times of gathered worship, of focused worship, of people coming together to turn their minds God. And as I've thought about that, I'm, I'm convinced that, that if you'll reflect on it for just a minute, you'll see that the very nature of our being as creatures requires that there be times set apart for concentrated f communion and fellowship with God. We are not infinite beings. We are finite beings. We can only do one or two or three things at the same time. Uh, we may be able to watch television and do homework at the same time. My children at least maintain that they are. But there is a limit to how many things we can do at the same time. We are not really able to do our tax return and pray. Maybe that's not a good example. <laughs> but you see, in terms of really focusing on God, either in terms of singing our praises or praying or listening to the preaching of the Word, we cannot do that while we are doing a whole series of other activities. We have to take time off and time out in order to concentrate upon God. Even though our whole life is lived in His presence, even though our whole life is for His service, we as finite beings have to take time to think about Him, to meet with Him, 
to fellowship with him. And I believe that that is not just a result of the fall. I believe that that was a reality of our human existence right from the beginning. I think that's why our Reformed forebears were right to say that the Sabbath was a creation ordinance. Before the fall, we needed a day out of our week for God. We needed time for God. I've always thought it's rather interesting that uh, uh, Genesis 3 tells us that God came to seek Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. It seems, maybe that was the Sunday evening service. But in any case, it was, uh, it's an indication, you see, that although they were, they were perfectly good and holy, still there were special times that they had to meet with God. Uh, they were not able always to think about God. They had other things, the cultivation of the garden, to think about. And so there are, were special times, and, and so it continues to be. It's the example we find in, uh, in the New Testament that the people of God take time for God. Now, that taking time for God um, takes uh, different forms. It can be personal communion with God as we individually take time to read the Word, meditate on the Word, pray. That's a form of worship. It can be family devotions as are built into our, um, uh, our conference where the family gathers to uh, read the Word, to talk about uh, God's Word, and to pray. That, too, is a time of worship. It's become extremely uh, uh, popular uh, and pervasive in, in many, many churches to have uh, various informal gatherings of groups uh, uh, of various kinds, uh, teenagers or ladies' societies or men's societies or a variety of different occasions where there are, is, a, is an informal gathering of one sort or another, and, and worship can go on there, even though that's contrary to the Westminster Directory of Public Worship study that. No informal gatherings. But we, that's a whole other issue. Of, uh, I, I think they were worried about um, those becoming occasions of, of political agitation in times of civil war. But anyway, that's a historical footnote of no great interest to anyone but me. Um, <laughs> but then also, there is, I think very clearly in the New Testament, times when the covenant community itself gathers for worship that the people of God come together not just as families, not just uh, as an individual, not just as an informal group, but comes together specifically as the church, as the people of God, as those who are under the covenant office bearers of Christ's church. And in that community, that official community, if you will, of uh, Christ's covenant people uh, gather for worship that that too is a characteristic of the people of God in the New Testament. And I think that's implicit in what we read in the book of Acts, in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, in a number of places where the people of God uh, come together, not just casually, not just ad hoc, but they come together as the covenanted people of God uh, to worship Him. And what we want to look at as we go along is particularly issues related to that official covenanted meeting of God with his people. So we don't need to deny for a minute that all of life is worship. We don't need to deny that there are uh, informal kinds of worship of one sort and another. But that does not at all uh, diminish the reality 
that there is a worship that belongs to the covenant people of God as a community and that God speaks to us out of his word as to how that worship should proceed. And that's what we want to spend time particularly focusing on in the time that we have together. Now, what is the character of that worship? How can we sum up worship uh, briefly? And uh, as I've thought about it, um, I've been impressed with a verse out of Psalm 74, verse 4, um, where the psalmist really talks about meeting with God. And I would suggest that if you want a very brief phrase of what our worship is, it's meeting with God. Now, in a, whole, in a sense, then, our whole life is meeting with God. At every, at every moment, we are in God's presence. When we pray very personally and privately, we are meeting with God. But it is also true that when we come together as God's people in church, as we would put it, in the covenant community, we are meeting with God. And uh, I, th- I think that is crucial uh, as the underlying reality of how we need to think about worship. Because I think too often that basic truth eludes us. That what worship is all about is meeting with God. And the reason that it can elude us is that as we gather, it is often not at all clear where God is. And some other Christian traditions, at least initially, seem to have an advantage over those of us who are Reformed. When a Roman Catholic goes to church, he knows exactly where God is. God is on the altar in the consecrated host. When you see that consecrated bread on the altar in a Roman Catholic church, if you're a faithful Roman Catholic, you know you are seeing God. And therefore, when a Roman Catholic asks, where is God when I worship? He just points to the altar. There is God. No confusion, no difficulty, very clear and straightforward. Uh, When a Pentecostal worships, he knows where God is. God is present in the powerful manifestation of his spirit. And so when uh, one brother uh, speaks in tongues and a sister dances in the Spirit, God is there visually. One, one can really see the manifestation of the presence and the power of God. But where is God when we Reformed folk gather? You look forward and uh, what do you see? Slightly overweight aging clergyman. I'm talking about me. Now, don't you get nervous. Uh, and, and where is God? Uh, you know, it, it, as, uh, as one observer said, the, the Reformed worship runs the risk of degenerating into a schoolroom. Look at you all, all with your pencils and paper out all ready to take notes, and here I am lecturing. Now, we know this isn't a a formal worship service, but but you see, that that easily uh, communicates itself to our our worship service. And and so we we can slip into the almost subconscious notion that God is way off in heaven, occasionally glancing down to see if you're taking good notes or not. And, 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 And we lose a sense that we have come to meet with God when we worship. 
We begin to think we've come perhaps to hear the truth. We've come perhaps to fellowship with one another. We've come to do some things. But unless undergirding all of the things we do is a profound consciousness that we gather in God's presence to meet with Him, then we don't grasp the essence, the heart of worship. And of course, our Reformed conviction is that we meet with God through His Word. God is present and powerfully present in and through His Word. And that's why Reformed worship historically has been saturated in the Word of God because where do we meet God? We meet God in His Word. But it is not a meeting the principal outcome of which is information. You see, that's, that's a reversion to the classroom way of thinking. I used to teach a course in preaching at the seminary. The students forced me to give it up. Um, but I used to say, um, you know, it is not the desired response to a Reformed sermon to have people go out saying, wow, I never knew that Hebrew word meant that. You see, uh, th that's a danger that, that we think the passing on of information is the primary function of a sermon. Now, I am not uh, opposing the notion that a sermon ought to have content or that a sermon should have information. But the sermon is the Word of God in which the people need to hear the voice of God and meet with Him. It is a meeting with God that is at the heart, at the essence, at the core of worship. And therefore, we need to come as the people of God with that kind of expectation. Uh, we're not coming to go through certain motions. We are not coming primarily to see friends. We are not coming primarily to be instructed. We are coming to stand in the presence of the living God, knowing that He is powerfully present uh, with us. And you see, that, that is a profound need of the human soul. And that is why even in this fallen world, everywhere you go in this world, worship takes place. It is often not God-honoring. It is often idolatrous and false in its character. But God has planted in the human soul the need for fellowship with Him and human beings who do not actualize or fulfill that need in a God-honoring way are compelled by their very nature to find some way to work it out in an idolatrous way. And so this world is filled with religion. Uh, Augustine said it powerfully, words you know, uh, right at the beginning of his uh, confession, he wrote, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they rest in thee. You have made us for yourself. You have made us directed towards you. You have made us so we are fulfilled only in you and there is a restlessness that wells up within us when we don't know you and that restlessness when we don't know the true God leads us to forms of worship that are false but in which we seek some kind of satisfaction. And so all around the world, 
there are efforts at worship. It's intriguing to me that even in the great atheist experiment of communism, the rituals of worship could not be avoided. I heard on the news driving up here today that there is a debate now going on in uh, Russia whether they ought to close Lenin's tomb. Now, what was Lenin's tomb for the communists in Russia? It was a, an object of holy pilgrimage to see holy relics so that one might be blessed. Now, no communist would have expressed it that way, but it was, you see, really just a continuation of Russian orthodoxy in a slightly secularized form. They used to go see the relics of the holy saints. Now they go see the relics of the holy Lenin even though uh, modern technology uh, uh, didn't always uh, keep Lenin in good shape and they had to uh, wax him up a bit from time to time. But you see, it was a holy pilgrimage. And, and what did you observe uh, uh, frequently around Red Square? You saw the giant icons of Marx and Lenin and Engels. The, the icons of Christ and of Mary uh, had been torn down to be sure, but they'd been replaced there was a need in the human soul for some object of veneration. And what was the May Day Parade? But a great uh, liturgical outworking of the rituals of communism to display its power. There is, there is deep-seated, unavoidably, in the human soul, a need for worship. And um, some of you may have seen the recent book by uh, Harvey Cox called Fire from Heaven. Harvey Cox, who in the 1960s wrote the book The Secular City, predicting the decline and demise and disappearance of religion, in, 19, in the 1990s writes a book called Fire from Heaven saying, I was wrong. Religion is not disappearing. Religion is more powerful, more present, more important to modern people uh, today than it ever was. <coughs> Secularism is not carrying all before it. People need religion. And uh, the book is a, really about uh, Harvey Cox's discovery of uh, Pentecostalism, which he declares an agreeable sort of religion uh, because uh, they really like everybody. And they're not like those uh, strict Protestants who really believe a lot of things. I think he's kind of hard on the Pentecostals. Uh, but uh, uh, you see, Harvey uh, Cox likes Pentecostalism because he thinks I don't think most Pentecostals would agree, but he thinks you can pour whatever meaning you want into their experiences. And therefore, experience, religious experience, is a good thing as long as you allow every individual to make of it whatever he will. So I, I suppose we could say this, this points to a great resurgence of religion at the Harvard Divinity School. Uh, not as far as I can see a resurgence of orthodoxy, but a resurgence of religion. And so, you know, not only in, uh, in Moscow with Lenin, but even at the Harvard Divinity School, there is a recognition that religion is, is a, a, an inescapable element of human experience and that worship is necessary to the human soul. And so uh, we can see that there is this inescapable reality that God has planted in us. But... As with all of the good gifts of God, the fall has meant 
that we have most often taken that good gift and corrupted it. And so in much of the world, we, not, we find not the true worship of God, but we find idolatry. And what is the essence, the heart, the core of idolatry? It's man-made worship. It's doing it my way. It's invented worship. Now, Paul uh, expressed it a little more elegantly and eloquently when he said uh, uh, idolatry is worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And what Paul really means, I think, is if we don't worship God as he is, we have to worship some aspect of the world he's made because we're not all that creative. We really can't come up with anything genuinely new. So if we won't worship the living God, then we have to worship some aspect of the world he's made. And so right from the earliest temptation, mankind has faced a worship temptation. One of the things that's intrigued me in my study of Scripture is how this worship temptation is one of the three great temptations that mankind seems to have faced right from the beginning. Now, when you think of the three great temptations, our minds go to our Lord in the wilderness, don't they? Where uh, the temptations that he suffered are summarized for us uh, in those three episodes of confrontation between Jesus and the evil one. Uh, one is what I call, uh, very originally, a food temptation. Uh, this is the kind of temptation that appeals to the hungry. And uh, Jesus was hungry, and so the evil one said, come and make these stones into bread. And the second temptation was a, a power temptation. There may be some better way of putting it, but briefly we can say a power temptation to show him the... Uh, the kingdoms of the world, no, to, to show him the, um, uh, to take him up on the top of the temple and say, if you are the Son of God, jump down. Demonstrate your power. Display your power publicly. And uh, the third temptation was the worship temptation. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll bow down and worship me, says the evil one. And what intrigued me was, as I looked back into the Old Testament, those three temptations are to be found in Psalm 78. That's the essential structure of Psalm 78. It's a long psalm. It's a psalm that uh, we don't usually sing through. Um, even for a good psalm singer, 72 verses is a bit much. But uh, this, this psalm is, is something of a review of the history of God's people and a reflection on the temptations that they have suffered. And, and the summary, in a sense, is in verses 7 and 8 of Psalm 78. Uh, the, the early verses appeal for one generation to teach the next of the, of the faithfulness of God. And then verse 7 says positively, then they would put, put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his covenant, keep his commandments. You see, that's what, that's what one generation needs to teach the next, the next. Trust in God, remember God, obey God. Trust in God, remember God, obey God. And then verse 8 puts it negatively, then they would not be like their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. Instead of trusting him, 
They were stubborn and rebellious. Instead of remembering him, they were not loyal. Instead of obeying him, they were not faithful. So there is this contrast between uh, what should be the goal of the covenant community through the generations and contrasted with it the, the proclivity of the covenant people to fall away from God and to ignore him. And then as this, um, uh, this psalm works itself out, uh, it, it recalls how the Lord is constantly being put to the test by his people. And this, tom, the, this psalm is really very carefully and intricately constructed. So the, the first test is a test of their trust in God. And it relates to food. Will God feed them in the wilderness? And they put God to the test, the psalm says. Now what does it mean to put God to the test? Well, if you look back then into the book of Exodus to the antecedents of this psalm, what it says there is the people put God to the test when they murmured and grumbled and said, is God really with us? That's the essence of putting God to the test. When you murmur and you grumble and you say to one another sort of behind your hand, is God really with us? Putting God to the test is always doubting the presence and power of God. That's at the heart of putting God to the test. And that's what these people did in the wilderness. They grumbled amongst themselves and said, is God really with us? Or is he going to let us starve here in the wilderness? And, and I think for most of us, as we read the history of Israel, we're always left sort of scratching our head and saying, how could this people have been so stupid? God who time and time and time again provided for them. God who gave a daily visible manifestation of his presence. How could this people have been so stupid? But they grumbled. They put him to the test. They wondered if he was present. They wondered if he was there to meet with them. Not even toe tapping, is it? <laughs> but in this same psalm at verse 56, then we find the third test. There's a second test, which is really a power test, and then the third test, uh, beginning at verse 56 of Psalm 78. But they put God to the test and rebelled against the Most High. They did not keep his statutes like their fathers. They were disloyal and faithless, as unreliable as a faulty bow. Great image. You want to shoot a straight arrow and the crooked bow and the, can't get the arrow to go where you want it to go. They angered him with their high places. They aroused his jealousy with their idols. There it is, you see. False worship. A worship test. They, they departed from the true worship of God. They did not obey him. They did not remember his power. They did not trust in his provision. But they also did not obey him in his commands about worship. They sat to eat and rose up to dance, the scripture says. <laughs> and so this is a temptation, you see, and, and it's a temptation, it seems to me, that is ultimately rooted in the very first temptation of mankind in the garden. What were the first words that the evil one spoke 
to Eve, it was a food temptation, wasn't it? Has God said that you may not eat from all the trees of the garden? And, and where does the evil one go with that temptation? Well, doesn't he perhaps at least go to a kind of power temptation? If you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll be wise. You'll have a whole new power. You'll know the difference between good and evil. And then perhaps, still to a further temptation, a worship temptation, you'll be like God. And the implication is, isn't it, God is a selfish being who doesn't want to share with you His divine character and power. But if you eat that fruit, then you too will be a God. A worship temptation. A temptation to raise up an idol. The, the essential idol. Myself. I will worship me. What better thing is there in creation? But I, I think part of the, what the Scripture is saying to us is that reverberating through all of human history, whether it's in the garden or characteristic of the people of God in the Old Covenant or characteristic of our Lord in His ministry as the second Adam and the true Israel, is this recurring theme of, trans, uh, of, of temptation at the heart of which is a worship temptation. We are constantly, as God's people, being lured towards idolatry. And that's why uh, John Calvin, uh, with his typically temperate and moderate uh, way of putting things, said, our hearts are factories of idolatry. Our hearts are factories of idolatry. This is the first evidence of uh, Calvinism in the spirit of capitalism. The... Uh, they're creating a factories that will turn out uh, idols. In, in, uh, in they're mass-produced. And, and that is the tendency of our heart. You see, it's not enough that we have one idol. It's better that we should have more. And that is the human tendency, to constantly be creating for ourselves uh, idols and not trusting in the true and the living God. But you see... Uh, um, God remains God. And even the very idolatry of our life testifies to our need for God. Testifies that we must ultimately uh, have God to find any kind of peace and satisfaction and hope. And that's why worship is so important for us. Because it stands at the very heart of whom we are created to be. We are not the creatures we are meant to be if we are not in a properly worshipful relationship with God. As some of you know, uh, John Calvin, in his uh, treatise on the necessity of reforming the church, says it near the beginning of that work that there are two great issues in the Reformation. And he says the second issue is the issue of salvation. And I can still remember the first time I read that treatise and the shock I felt when John Calvin, the great reformer, said that the second most thing about the important thing about the Reformation was our salvation. And he said the first issue of the Reformation was the worship of God. And as I thought about that, it suddenly struck me that that makes sense because why are we saved? 
We are saved to fellowship with God. We are saved to have communion with God. We're not just saved to escape hell. We're not just saved for a family reunion in heaven. We are saved for fellowship, communion, meeting with God. And therefore, the whole end and object of salvation is that our fellowship with God would be restored, and in this world we anticipate that blessed eternal reunion with God in the worship of the covenant community. And so at the very heart and focus of our Christian life needs to be the eager anticipation of the worship of God. Now, for any children who are getting discouraged at this point, let me assure them heaven will be better than our worship as it goes Sunday by Sunday. Uh, We still struggle here on earth uh, to uh, um, minister struggle, to be effective in the leadership of worship, worshipers struggle to concentrate and participate as they ought by faith and with attention in worship. But it is an anticipation of that great day when in, in a full and blessed and complete way we will meet with God. And so we need to have that sense of, of eager anticipation, of blessedness, of privilege as we gather to worship God. Jesus reminds us of that, I think, very pointedly in uh, John chapter 4, where he speaks with a Samaritan woman. And it's interesting to read some of the uh, commentators on that passage, Uh, commentators who uh, think that when Jesus promises that um, there will be a well of living water, now now that's, that's good witnessing, Jesus, well done talking to her about her need of eternal life. And then, and then he turns the conversation so that uh, she has to confront her own sin. Well done, Jesus. But then some of the commentators seem actually to suggest that, that Jesus got sort of suckered when the woman asks this utterly extraneous question about worship. And some of the commentators leave the impression that you see Um, this woman is trying to avoid and evade the moral question of her life by asking something irrelevant, namely a theological question. Now, of course, that reveals, I would suggest, something of the prejudices of the commentators at that point uh, that I think do tend too often to assume that theology is irrelevant. Jesus does not see the woman as having distracted the conversation. Uh, Jesus does not get suckered in his conversations. You can write that down. That's a firm principle of hermeneutics. Jesus felt the woman was absolutely right. If she wanted living water, if she wanted to repent of her life, then that new life, that repentance would culminate in a life of worship. And she was right to ask, how do we worship? Who is right about worship? Where do we worship? And in response to those questions that Jesus gave, one of his great teachings on worship. And we often remember that he says, those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. The Jews have been right up till now. Jerusalem was the place to worship. But a new day is coming, a new day in which 
There won't be holy places anymore, but all of us who worship must worship in spirit and truth, a great teaching of our Lord. But just as important is the teaching of our Lord where he says, for God is seeking worshipers. I think sometimes we've kind of neglected that, that phrase. God is seeking worshipers. He's not only seeking the lost. He's not only seeking followers, disciples. But in a real sense, what the Lord is seeking is worshipers. Now, it seems to me sometimes we've turned things around and we have worship that's seeking the lost. No, God is seeking the lost that they might be worshipers. The, the end of the journey is to be a worshiper of God, a worshiper in spirit and in truth. And I think when Jesus says we must worship in spirit and in truth, he's saying we must worship in the spirit of truth. We must worship in the power of truth. We must worship in truth and in vitality, in the life that comes from the Spirit. But truth is every bit as important as the Spirit. God, if we are not worshiping according to truth, according to God's own self-revelation. And that's why we as Reformed people, historically, have been so concerned to study the Bible to see what it teaches about Worship. We are concerned that we be worshiping God truthfully as well as spiritually. And we as Reformed Christians have always insisted sincerity and vitality can never justify error in worship. And at our more polemical points, we point out that the prophets of Baal were extremely sincere. They were really into it. They were working hard at it. They were concentrating. They were extremely faithful. They were extremely energetic. But God did not accept their worship. Well, yeah, but that's not a good example. That wasn't any kind of faithful worship. Well, what about the children of Israel dancing around the golden calf? They called that golden calf Yahweh. They were worshiping Yahweh. They weren't worshiping Baal. They were very sincere. And there were mitigating circumstances. Moses had disappeared. They were in a lot of trouble. They were in a lot of need. And here they were worshiping few excesses perhaps, but there they were, worshiping. But over and over again, the Scripture says, sincerity does not justify false worship. And that's why Reformed people have been so eager, so adamant, so concerned to study the Scripture, to find out what does God want in His worship. And that, that passion amongst Reformed people comes significantly out of our vision of the character of God. Ultimately, the character of worship reflects one's idea about the character of God. And we, as Reformed people in particular, 
focus as we approach the issue of worship on the awesomeness of God, the holiness of God. We are drawn often to Isaiah 6 where the the very angels, the holy angels must cover their eyes as they contemplate the glory of God and cry out, Holy, Holy, Holy! But that's not just an Old Testament image. It's a a New Testament reality as well. So that at the conclusion of chapter 12 of, of Hebrews, that letter exhorts the people of God. Let us worship God acceptably. Let us worship God acceptably. Why? Why do we have to worry that our worship should be acceptable, that it should be fitting, that it should be acceptable to God? Why do we need to be concerned about that? Because Hebrews 12 says, our God is a consuming fire. Now that's a quotation, you know, from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4 that begins talking about the general requirement of obedience to God and then focuses as the chapter goes on particularly on the requirement of obedience in worship and then culminates in this statement, our God is a consuming fire. And therefore those who would say, oh well, the New Testament is a, is a new era and a new deal, all of that fearfulness of God as a consuming fire is an Old Testament reality. No, the book of Hebrews says, let us worship God acceptably with reverence and with awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, that's not the whole picture. Our God is also a a heavenly Father who loves us for Christ's sake. Our God also brings us joy and thanksgiving in the Holy Spirit. All of that is true. And sometimes, perhaps, in the history of Reformed Christianity, we have underestimated the joyfulness of our faith and worship and underestimated the fatherly care and love of God that needs to be manifested in our worship. But I think in our day and age, the great temptation of most is to forget that our God is a consuming fire. That remains also true. And the glory of our worship must be to balance, on the one hand, the fatherly kindness and love of God which produces great joy in our hearts with the holiness, the power of God which must produce a suitable awe and reverence in our hearts. And you see, who is able to do that? Who is able to strike that balance? I would suggest, you see, we are not in our, of ourselves really up to that task. And so God has told us in His Word, that's the conviction of our Reformed heritage. God has not left us on our own to be uh, creative. God has given us His Word to tell us how He would be worshipped. And that's what I hope we can concentrate on as we um, study the Scripture together uh, in these days to come. Because God wants us to be a worshiping community. It's at the very heart and center and focus of our Christian experience. It's the fulfillment, you see, of those wonderful words that echo through the book of Hebrews. Draw near. I think it's seven times those words repeat in the book of Hebrews. Draw near. Draw near to God. Draw near to His heavenly temple. Draw near to His very presence. 
Draw near to the Holy of Holies. Draw near to meet with your God. That is your privilege as your people, as His people. And that blessing of worship needs to, to fill us anew with a, with a thrill and with a devotion and with a hope and with an expectation. I think um, we need in our day, almost more than anything else as Reformed people, a renewed sense of Reformed worship. We are, we are surrounded by other forms of worship that uh, uh, are, are sincere and have elements of truth in them, no doubt. Uh, we have liturgical forms of worship, um, probably best manifested in Anglicanism. We have Pentecostal forms of worship. We'll be talking some about that a little bit more later. But there is also a great heritage of Reformed worship that we need to, to study that we need to, to learn about in a whole new and fresh way, I think. Uh, the Synod of the Christian Reformed Church is meeting um, this week. And one of the things before the Synod is a report that has been about uh, uh, three years in the writing, a report mandated uh, by an early Synod on, uh, to study uh, a new issues of worship. And I read the report, and it's a kind of interesting report. There are things that are profitable uh, uh, in the report. But, but the most striking thing about the report is the conclusion there is no such thing as reformed worship. And I thought as I read the report, no, if you define worship in the way that this report does, it is true, there is no such thing as reformed worship. But the deeper issue, you see, for us is what is Reformed worship? What is the distinctive genius of Reformed worship? And, and what, how, how have we perhaps dropped the ball so that so many people seem to be seeking uh, fulfillment in worship from other sources and other traditions? And how can we find anew and afresh the essence of Reformed worship as it's taught in the Scripture. That'll be our goal together, to recover that importance of worship that has been part of our heritage. Let's uh, pray together. <clears throat> oh Lord our God, we're thankful for the privilege that is ours to be a worshiping people. And we know, O oh Lord, that uh, deep in our hearts you have planted a need for fellowship with you a need that is fulfilled not only as we personally worship you, but also as we corporately worship you as your people. And we thank you that you have not left us on our own to discover the ways of worship, but that you have directed us by your word. And we pray that in these days to come, it will be an opportunity for us to look into your word, to study that word, and to seek in every way to honor you and to uh, follow you as we seek to worship you. Hear us then and bless us in these days to come, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.